So um, yeah, so we're gonna do marriage tonight. Hopefully, it'll be it'll be something you can you can hold on to. Just tried to start with a little something light um, tonight. You know, marriage doesn't always work out the way you might think it will, right? Or with the person that you might plan in your mind and your emotions and everything that, that you think you'll marry. Um, movies and other in our culture, we have a way of kind of shaping that for us, right? And creating this dream scenario of marriage. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, especially from a biblical standpoint, obviously. Um, before we do that, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, my marriage. Yeah, all right. So um, this is a picture from, oh, I don't know, mid-90s when um, I met Michelle. We were not yet married in the picture on the top left. But uh, once a year, we were living in Costa Rica, and once a year we would go to the Bribri tribe along the Panamanian border and uh, administer there, and that was a shot from from the rainforest there as we were hiking through along the border with Panama, ministering to people there. And then the, the one on the bottom right was our first spring here in Chapel Hill. So that's over by the old wells, you can probably tell. The kids were a little bit, little bit smaller then. I think Elijah was not yet three years old in that picture. And, um, and Josiah, I don't even know, that was what, spring of 12, 2012, so... Um, I thought I'd pull up some older pictures rather than like, I guess all the Valentine's pictures this year were like your snapshot from when you first met somebody to years later. So anyway, I put that up there for you. So we've been married almost 22 years. So we celebrated Valentine's Day this year by being in different states from one another. And our anniversary is coming up March 7th, and we're going to celebrate by being on different continents <laughs> on our anniversary. So um, yeah, hey, if... Those of you that are on trips this spring break, you know that's coming up really quick. Uh, I'm leading the team to East Africa, so we'll be heading out on March 6th. That's coming really fast. Uh, and then the team is going to work with the Atlanta Dream Center, inner city Atlanta. Uh, those of you going to Ecuador got a few more months till that happens. We've been married almost 22 years. March 7th will be exactly 22 years. We met as single missionaries in Costa Rica. February 1st, 1996 was when we met in the airport in San Jose, Costa Rica. Yeah, a long time ago. I'm not even want to guess. Oh no, a lot of you, most of you, were not born. What then. year was it? Anyway, um, what's that? Ninety-six. Yeah. Right. You're with me. You're my fault. I'm with you. I believe it was two years actually. It's been. It's been a. Um, it's been a really great 22 years. It's been challenging. What are y'all talking about tonight? Okay, never mind. Um, it has been a really great 40 countries later, um, 20, almost 30 years in missions from Michelle, and uh, 25, 26 or so from myself. It's, uh, it's never been boring. Two kids later, um, y'all pray for us because I just got Durham Public Schools just notified me they're closing tomorrow so that means my kids are essentially probably going to get a four day weekend with the snow coming in maybe you guys are praying for no classes tomorrow too I don't know so we'll be uh, hanging out with those guys it also means I don't have to be also means I don't have to be uh, at, at practice at 6.45 in the morning that, although I'm sure my dog will be like calling at me at that hour to go out. So anyway, so marriage, you know, I've had this question put to me by a lot of people these days. Is it even worth it? 
So why do I say that? Because the understanding of, and definition of marriage has really undergone fundamental changes in recent years. Our pessimism towards marriage as well, I think, has grown because we hear statistics like 50% of all marriages, what? In divorce, right? And we also hear things being said like it's the same within the church as outside the church, so why even bother is, is the sense that some people take. But do you ever wonder where that 50% mark comes from? You may have found that statistic, looked it up, found the primary source of that information. It's been around, well, somewhat. It's been around a long time, really. Guess what? Turns out the answer is not only more complex than you think, the answer is that number is wrong. Yeah, I know, right? Shocking. Thanks, Pavlin, for the drama there. I appreciate it. Um, Shanti Feldhahn, who's a researcher trained at Harvard, she just wrote a book called The Good News About Marriage. After years of do looking up statistics and researching it, she has concluded that the divorce rate for first-time marriages in America is likely between 20 and 25%, somewhere in there. Um, what's that? Not, what's that? There you go. Rates are even lower, though, for couples that regularly attend church together and pray together. Don't know exactly what the numbers are, but they probably reside somewhere in the teens. So the numbers are actually much better about marriage than you think. My parents were together before my dad passed away, I don't know, 50 years or so, something like that. Uh, long time. Feldenhahn writes, highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and focus on Him rather than on their marriage or spouse for fulfillment and happiness. And Dr. Uh, Bradford Wilcox says, he finds that active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are actually 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preferences. So there's a lot of new stats starting to come out as people really genuinely research. We think the 50% mark came from, when you go back to the 1970s, there were a lot of laws passed across the country that for the first time, no-fault divorces were allowed in, in many states. You could basically divorce anybody for any reason, and a lot of people just laughed and just quit. And so what they did statistically was they just started projecting that out over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and we get an estimated... 50%. We think that's what happened, but it's not actually a very good statistic to begin with. So next week we're going to do dating. As you can imagine, dating and marriage are, are very much linked up together, so please be back for that. But we're going to focus tonight largely just on the marriage side. Just one person, question mark. Soulmate or soulmate? And you can see how clever that is, right? Okay. A lot of people in America today, a lot of people in church today, think that there's just only one person on the planet for you to marry. That is God's perfect person for you, right? Or Disney's perfect person for you. We just had Murder Mystery Night. Uh, well, Jacob's not here tonight. Jacob was the murderer in Murder Mystery Night. Yeah, had a cool fairy tale murder mystery. Um, so the question is, what do you think? Is there just one person out there for you? What do you guys think? No. Come on, it's actually, don't be quiet, answer the question. No. David says no. no. What do you guys think? John says no. no. I feel like... Oh, no. All right, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> Madeline, what are you saying? I, so I feel like realistically it's a no, but then romantically I'm like, it's a yes. All right, romantically you want it to be true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, go for it, man. Jason. Jason. Uh, I said, I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> well, the challenge, of course, is there's like billions of people on the planet, and what if your one person lives in Sri Lanka or... Guess you're single. Or wherever. Yeah, guess you're single, right? John's like, you're out of luck. And what happens... <laughs> And what happens when that person dies? Are you just, you, you don't have anybody else? That's it? You're one person? It's, what if they pick the wrong, yeah, what if they pick the wrong person, right? Yeah. Okay. It's common, listen, it's common for Christians to believe that there's just one person out there that God has for them. It is the Christian version of the soulmate idea. In other words, finding my missing half. Okay. Just putting it in Christianese terms. And so Christians go hoping the Lord will find them the, the one. Yeah. Let me just say this real quick. There's nothing missing about who you are as a person in regards to that. Amen. Right? You're not half a person. Amen. Now, I hope that I, you know, my desire for most all of you would be that you're married unless you really think you're given to being single for the rest of your days. But... Um, but you're not going to find the other half of you as a person. Right? You are a whole person as you are. Now, praying's not bad. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for the person that you're going, going to marry. I prayed for many years, as did my wife, that we would, before we met each other, that, you know, that we would actually find just, just a great person to marry. And, uh, of course, she found a great person to marry. You know? okay. I could get away with it. She probably won't listen to the podcast, so I'm okay with that. Uh, Okay, but here's the thing I want to challenge you on on that. We did pray for years for each other, even though we didn't even know each other existed at the time. My wife's from Arizona. I grew up in Virginia. We met in Costa Rica. Um, but when you commit to praying, when you commit to praying for a spouse, stay with it. Not just when you think you need help or quit when you think you and your emotions have it all together and you're all good. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given, given him or her. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all his ways. So if you are going to commit to praying for that spouse, stay with it. Because you're in essence saying, God, I trust you, I need you to help me find someone to marry that will love me through and through and love you as well, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. It's interesting, though, um, that oftentimes, as Christians, we get interested in someone, interpret that fat infatuation as evidence that the Lord has spoken. Right? Maybe you feel that way about somebody you see in a movie or on a television show. Right? Or the same God that's in all the Hallmark movies. Right? Same story, same God. Not really, but you know what I mean. Right? It's easy to be infatuated with someone and think, therefore, that, hey, God has spoken. This is, this is the one. That this is a match made in heaven and get married. But so often Christians will find that their marriage is difficult and takes way more work than they realize and at times doesn't feel very satisfying. And it's easy at this point, though, to think that they missed God on this. Or worse, you think God missed it. God, I prayed for all this time. Look what I got. Right? Because there's a lot of discovery that goes on once you do get married, trust me. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's quote on matches made in heaven. He says this, If love is made in heaven, and in light of some of God's matches, it leaves one to wonder if heaven's being run any better than things are run down here. 
So God's not going to control any of us, right? He may, if you ask Him for help, He may very well help you. I believe He will. He helped me and Michelle find each other as well. But truth is, I think there are a lot of potential people who could be a wise match. There really are. I think, I think back to my mom. My mom was fairly young when my dad passed away of a heart attack. And, um, and I, thought, I thought maybe my mom would get remarried, right? And she just, she never did. But she didn't, it wasn't because she didn't think there was anybody else out there that she could potentially marry. She just chose to remain single for the rest of her days. So could be a wise match because there's other people out there. I don't think there's necessarily just one person out there for you until, everybody say until, until, until you get married. Until you get married. Then that is the person. Then there's only one person for you. They are now your soulmate, S-O-L-E. Once you marry them and you commit yourself to them. But choose wisely, right? So in light of this, the Bible counsels us to choose wisely. Proverbs 21.9 Better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Yikes. Right? Now that's not just being sexist, although it could be interpreted that way. It could be flipped. It's no fun living with a quarrelsome husband either, right? If two people are at odds with one another, you're going to want to separate just to have some sense of peace in life, right? So you want to choose wisely. We need to choose very wisely because the Scripture is very clear that God also hates divorce. God truly hates divorce. Now, hold on a second. Malachi 2.16. We're not going to give you the Scripture verse for that one tonight or put it up here. And that Christians are not to divorce except... In very limited circumstances. What could be some of those limiting circumstances? Adultery would be one of them, right? That would be a circumstance in which divorce would be permitted. Abandonment. Someone just literally leaves the, sp- the other person in the marriage and never comes back. Uh, but they turn into a wolf. Oh, my goodness, Tiger. <laughs> um, physical or sexual abuse would be other, other circumstances that would be cause for divorce, divorce and separation. To divorce for reasons other than those is a sin not only against the person you've covenanted with, but against God Himself, the covenant maker, the one that's holding that marriage together. You know, we like to say in our culture that marriage is an institution, but it's not. It's not. It's a covenant. It's a binding together between, between two people, between a man and a woman, and God in the mix, in the mix, as He's the one that's holding the covenant together. And He created this, guys, Long before there was any like man-made institution. This was ordained long before any of us ever walked the planet even. And it was his idea. So the stakes are high. Marry wisely or resign yourself to an ill-suited marriage like you saw in The Princess Bride there. Of course, her Wesley does eventually show up. For those of you that love happy ever after mm-hmm. endings, he was dead, but he was only mostly dead. And then he comes, <laughs> he comes and gets her. Spoiler alert. What's that? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Okay, if you haven't seen Princess Bride, I apologize. Um, It's still worth watching. It's got Andre the Giant, and it's wonderful. And um, anyway, Um, but here's here's something to caution against: beware of over spiritualizing this issue. Too many Christians have used the notion of God's will and God told me as a shortcut, as a way to avoid the real work of discernment in our relationships, of testing if a person is a good and wise match. We've all kind of been there, or we, we want to be there, in a relationship where we think, man, everything, this person just gives me the, you know, the goosebumps. This is just like, oh, this is it. This is wow. 
And a lot of relationships are that way. That's the great thing about falling in love and eventually getting married is there's that moment and there's that season and there's that time of if this goes really well, oh, man, it's like magical rainbows and unicorns and whatever else you can paint the sky with, right? But if it doesn't, it can, go, it can be devastating at the same time. That risk, that giving, putting yourself on the line is, can be wonderful, but it can be very scary at the same time. So we want to make sure we choose a good and wise match. Now, I do believe, I want to stress that I do believe God will help us and we should pray, but never, though, as an excuse to laziness, shallow thinking, and careless evaluation of our relationships. I'm going to say that one more time. I do believe we should pray. I do believe that God will help us, but never as an excuse to laziness and shallow thinking and careless evaluation. In other words, just letting yourself get caught in the in the infatuation, in the moment, and not really carefully finding out who this person is and letting that person find out who you are as well. Now, the Bible also challenges us even further and, and deeper on this idea of marry someone who is a, a believer as well. Okay? Yes, there are many people potentially could be a wise and good match for you, but you should also be very guarded to make sure you marry someone else who believes what you do. This is a good uh, point to address with the importance of Christians marrying other Christians. Scripture clearly teaches that those who follow Jesus should not be yoked, as it's what it calls, yoked together as if like two oxen hooked up together, pulling in the same direction with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And this certainly includes marriage. As Christians, we are commanded to only marry other faithful Christians. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. We're going to talk about why in just a second. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. It makes sense if for the believer. Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, He becomes the center of your marriage. He becomes the center of your life. And what that means is this. It affects your lifestyle, your values, your beliefs, and even just the way you filter and see the entire world around you. If you marry someone who doesn't share those things, they're going to have different values, different beliefs, different lifestyle choices that aren't going to match up with the ones that you, that the Scriptures and God are challenging you to live by. Okay? Now, I have known people, they call it missionary dating, which is like one believer dates a non-believer thinking, if I date them, they're just going to see how much I love Jesus and how wonderful He is, and life's going to be amazing, right? And they're going to get, they're going to come to belief. But you know, have you ever been around people that don't share the same standards that you do? Let's just say their standards are a little lower than the ones that you hold, Okay? You spend time with them, odds are maybe your standards will lift them. But most times, their standards are going to pull you down. Y'all are going to find some compromised middle gray area that you live in. Right? That's usually what happens. And it's going to be the same case with a believer and a non-believer. It's not always, it can happen that a believer can marry a non-believer and they'll, they'll come to an agreement that's in line with the Scriptures, but odds are they're going to come to a compromise where it's just kind of muddy water. Nothing's clear. Nothing's understood by both parties or agreed upon. 
So this has big implications for who we, who we date. Because dating is an intentionally exclusive friendship that may, in fact, grow to the point of marriage. Might not, but it might. So you need to keep those in mind. Also, marrying a non-Christian, if you're a Christian, is, it's unloving, to be honest. What do I mean by that? If marriage to a non-Christian is forbidden, then the Christian who has chosen to pursue a dating relationship with a non-believer must either ultimately disobey God in this matter or break off the relationship. It is extremely unloving to enter into a relationship that you know you cannot righteously allow to end in marriage at some, other, at some point. Right? It doesn't mean it has to end in marriage between a believer and a believer per se, but if you know it can't, then you probably shouldn't be in that, in that relationship. So out of love for God and out of love for the non-Christian, we ought not to date those outside of the faith, no matter how kind and loving they are. And they can be, right? This isn't, a, this isn't a judgment on people that don't believe in Christ. It's just a simple, practical fact that if you don't share the same beliefs, the same worldview, the same values, and all those things, you're going to have problems. You're going to have big problems in your relationship. So we've probably all heard stories where it did work out, but I, I would say this to you. Do not base fundamental life decisions on exceptions. Okay? Do not base fundamental life rules and decisions on exceptions. We can all find exceptions to just about anything, mm-hmm. right? But they're exceptions for a reason. They're outliers for a reason. They don't happen consistently. You want, you want to have better odds, I would think, to, uh, to find someone to live the rest of your life with. And when we date a non-believer and then we break it off, we can do great harm not only to that person emotionally, but spiritually as well. We can jeopardize their entire well-being, their uh, eternal well-being. What do I mean by that? It can be easy for them, the person that you've broken the relationship with off, to think, God doesn't think I'm good enough. Or what kind of God is it that would deny me this kind of love and, tear this, and take this person that I want to be with away? When you knowingly enter in that relationship... You put that in play that if you say, hey, I can follow the scriptures, then you walk away and this person feels less, less than they should as a, as, a, as a human being, really. And they certainly may not view God or you and your faith in a positive light at that point. So when the doors of their heart can be shut forever to Christ and His gospel because of our involvement with an unbeliever in such a profound experience. And I want to pause there. We have a tendency in our culture today to treat marriage and dating and sex and so many other components really casual, as if, like, it doesn't mean anything. It's just whatever, right? Marriage, giving yourself away to somebody, as we always like to say, being fully known and fully loved, and the sexual act that goes along with it, we now know physiologically even that there's a bonding that happens when two people come together. There's a bonding emotionally that happens when two people commit to give themselves to each other. Not, and so it's not a small thing. It's not a casual thing. It's actually a sacred and holy thing that we must guard and protect and treat it that way. And I say that also to each of you to say protect yourself that way. Don't just give yourself away to anybody. And every time you casually do so, you give a part of you away that you might not get back. 
You numb a part of your emotional well-being. You numb a part of your spiritual well-being when you treat dating, marriage, and sex casually. It's meant to be something sacred and holy, intimate and special between two people in a marriage setting. Here's a here's the one I'm gonna challenge you on. I read this book many years ago, and uh, I'm gonna use part of it here tonight. Marriage to make us happy or make us whole? Because we're taught, right? Life in general, and especially marriage. Marry somebody, what? Be happy. But what if marriage is not designed that way? What if that's not God's intention? One of the primary mistakes people make in marriage is that they go into marriage for the wrong reasons. In our culture, people get married because they hope to find personal happiness. They look to marriage and their marriage partner to bring them self-fulfillment, self-actualization, and satisfaction. Remember I told you a minute ago, a few minutes ago, that you're not a half a person? Okay? You're a whole person. If you enter into marriage thinking somehow marrying this other person is going to fill all these gaps and voids and everything, then you're kind of falling back into that into that trap a little bit. Here's the other thing. Whatever gaps, whatever faults, whatever you're not, when you come into a marriage, they don't just magically get fixed. They get magnified. Amen. They get brought to the surface. Right? Because that person knows you now. This isn't a date where you can put your best foot forward, right? This isn't social media where you can put your best look out there, your best experiences, and that's who you are. You're in an intimate, vulnerable relationship now where they know you and you know them. And so it gets magnified. The hard reality is we over-idealize and idolize romance and marriage in the culture today. We over-idealize thinking it's going to be more than it's not. And idolize meaning we hold it up as an idol, as on a pedestal almost, through romance and marriage. Looking to deliver what God never intended another human relationship to deliver. Because what do you do when you get into that marriage and that person is not what you had hoped they were? Do you work at it? Do you stay with them? Or do you just go, ah, I'm just going to try somebody else. I'm going to try to get away. And so over time, we can feel disillusioned. The marriage, my partner's not bringing me wholeness, happiness, and self-fulfillment, but they never were designed to do that. And so we get to a point where we say, I don't feel love anymore. I'm just not in love. How many of you know in love is an emotion? And emotions go like this. And emotions come in waves and jump all over you, and other times they're just not existent at all. They're not consistent. They're not trustworthy. They're good to have, okay? Emotions aren't bad, but neither are they trustworthy. Amen. They're reactions most of the time to circumstances and things that we're in. And so when we say, I don't feel love anymore, what does that really mean? Relationship is hard work. And we conclude in those moments that we have married the wrong person. And we move on and we go to try to find the right person. But what if, God, what if happiness is not God's primary aim in marriage? What if instead one of God's primary agendas in marriage is to make us holy? More like Himself. What if marriage is one of God's primary training grounds to confront our own deep self-centeredness? And to help us to grow into becoming selfless, self-sacrificing, and other focused beings who reflect the self-giving nature of our Creator. What if it's that way? You know, when we got married, I thought I thought I was going to be a pretty good husband. 
One thing I'm glad is we didn't get married when I was like right out of college. I just didn't. I just was. That's the hard truth. I didn't know anything. I thought I knew a lot of stuff. Um, I was an okay person, but I was a very self-centered person at the time too. Um, I didn't get. We didn't get married until I was uh, 29. I think when we yeah you know, we finally got married. I was 29. Um, but I had a lot of ideas about how good I was going to be at this. Until one day I ordered at, uh, at a restaurant in, a, in an airport somewhere. My wife and I were, at that time, didn't have kids. And we were married not, not very long, maybe about a year and a half, two years. And, uh, um, traveling the world. We're changing countries every three, four weeks. And, uh, yeah, just, and by the way, living out of a suitcase and traveling the world is romantic for about two weeks. <laughs> and then after, yeah, after like six months of that, it's not, it's not romantic. And jumping trains in India and other places, not so much. Um, anyway, we were staying in an airport outside of a fast food chain. We had a little layover. We're like, it's dinner time. You get something to eat. So I walked up, and I ordered what I wanted. And, um, and then Michelle's, like, standing next to me. And I'm her thinking, okay, now she's going to order what she wants. And uh, I guess I just missed that one altogether because she just kind of stared me down. Like, oh, what is this? Um, by the way, Anybody in a relationship, it, communicate, okay? Just put that out there. And so, and so I'm like, you're going to order? And she's like, well, you didn't even ask me what I wanted. And I'm like, I'm letting you order now. And she's like, what she really wanted was, first of all, she wasn't very hungry. And she thought, okay, why don't I just tack, we put some stuff together and share it. And it won't cost a small fortune because most airports in the world, you pay an exorbitant amount of money for food. Especially if you ever buy food in like London or some of those places, it's very expensive. Or JFK in New York, same thing. Anyway, she was expecting one thing. I was oblivious to that, that thing. And it just turned into like fasting, basically, is what that turned into. We're just not going to eat today. And we're going to go sit in the corner and be angry and mad at each other. So um, it really challenged my self-centeredness and my way of thinking and my way of living. And we all come into this, in the marriage with those things, right? You don't stop being you when you come into a marriage. You, you come in with your personality and your family history and your experiences and your likes and dislikes, all those things, and they may, they may match some of those things in the person in the marriage with you, and they may not. you got to work at them. you got to work at them. And what it really showed me was marriage became a mirror, showing me my temper, my self-absorption, my inflexibility, and for me, I don't do it anymore because I'm grumpy at old guys that like get off my lawn now. But it used to be I avoided conflict at all costs. Anybody ever avoid conflict at all costs? Not a very healthy thing to do. Hey, I like it. There's a whole bunch of people raising hands. I don't like it, but it's good that you recognize it, right? Because we do it. We don't like, most of us don't like conflict. Some people do, but most of us don't generally like it. So the list goes on. My marriage to Michelle has become a place where I learn how simple I am. That's the hard reality. It has opened up to me innumerable chances to repent and seek the Spirit's help and learning to love another more than myself. More than myself. Marriage. So marriage actually shows us our need for the Gospel. But in the same turn, the Gospel also shows us the pattern of how to live in a marriage. Timothy Keller has written many great books, um, points out Paul's understanding of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. We see that secret of marriage is that marriage is meant to be patterned on the gospel. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 25, says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself 
as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. But here's the sacred holy part. Remember I talked a moment ago about not treating this as something casual. God's saying this reflects the nature of human beings and God in relationship, your marriage. It's meant to reflect that. It's meant to reflect what? Grace and humility. Christ did not what? He did not seek His own recognition when He came. What did He do? He laid down His life. He gave up His kingdom to give His life for each of us. The gospel message is that in our failures, Christ befriended us and came not to please Himself, not to serve His own interests, but to let go of self and offer Himself in sacrifice to us. That is the way we should live with one another in marriage. There's a cool word, Greek word for the nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit Trinity. It's called perichoresis. And it, it literally means to dance and flow around, but it also means to defer to the other person, to defer to the well-being of the other person in the relationship, to always be giving and receiving because everybody in the relationship is giving all the time and looking out for the betterment of everybody involved. Husband and wife should be the same. So in the same way, marriage is meant to be a joint exercise of brother and sister in Christ, joined in life, long friendship, where we help each other leave behind a life of self-centeredness and the pursuit of personal happiness, and instead to daily, intentionally embrace a life of self-giving, self-sacrificial friendship with my spouse, asking for and extending grace and that's what it means. That's what it's like to be married. That's what it's like to be married from the biblical perspective. It's to live with your spouse as Christ lived for the church. To give yourself away. To forgive them, to forgive when there's been wrongs had and done. Stand grace, but also to speak truth to one another and to love unconditionally. Sounds hard, doesn't it? It is. It's impossible, really. Um, it's impossible without Christ and without the Holy Spirit's help. Amen. Seeing yourself, your deep self-centeredness can be quite painful. Trust me. <laughs> Not just over a hamburger in an airport restaurant, but many other ways. But Christian marriage can be wonderful. When working as God intends marriage to work, I can experience Christ's real forgiveness, and I can experience His unconditional love and loyalty through my spouse. Do you realize, guys, that God actually works through you in this world? Now we all sit around and go, why didn't God do something? Why didn't God do that? Why didn't He do this? You know, it just might be that He said, why didn't you do something? Why didn't I do something? You read what the Scripture said. You saw the need in the person in the situation. Why didn't you do something? We're here with a purpose and a destiny, not just to be and get out of jail free at the end of the whole daggone thing. Right? We have responsibilities to one another to represent Christ in our marriage, in our relationships, in all kinds of relationships. And the cool thing is 
that as we help others to walk that way, we grow as a person. And we become more like Jesus every day. All right, we're just about there. We're about done. So the culture says, make marriage about your personal happiness. Make it about personal fulfillment. But we see so often this eludes us in marriage. Marriage is not a guarantee of that. It's not even designed for that. That other person is not on this earth to fill all the gaps and voids in you. Now, they might love you through and through all their days, and they might support you, and you guys grow together, and that's what it's all about. But you can't expect them to be a missing half. You can't expect them to fill all these things in your life. That's not what they're there for. The Gospel says, make marriage about sacrificial living, putting another's happiness over your own, service for over self-fulfillment. I'm going to say that one more time. The Gospel says, make marriage about sacrificial living, putting another's happiness over your own. Service over self-fulfillment. The Christian paradox is that when couples live out mutual self-sacrifice in marriage, they end up finding mutual self-fulfillment and happiness along the way. We can't help each other with that. But we're not the answer to that individually to one another. Marriage itself is not that way. Because in the Gospel, the way to find life is to lose it. You want to find happiness in your marriage? Give yourself away and seek the betterment of the other person in marriage. Right? Live sacrificially towards each other day in and day out. The way of discovering lasting joy and fulfillment is by putting Christ and others before ourselves. The one who seeks to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. So the neat thing is... Yeah, we've got this romantic idea of what marriage is going to be, how wonderful and amazing, and it is. It's awesome. Okay? It's also hard, but very much worth it. But I want you to go into it, one, not treating it casually. Treat it as something sacred and holy. And it's like our walk with Jesus. It's a becoming, right? You're not supposed to go into marriage and just have it all figured out. Nobody does. It's like, no, I'm going to enter into this relationship and I'm going to lay my soul bare before this other person and we're going to walk together and together every day we're going to become a little bit more like Christ. A little bit more and a little bit more. And that's what it's like. And in that way, it reflects the gospel. In that way, it reflects Christ's relationship with people inside your own marriage.